Hi everyone, welcome to Third Space CV Podcast, where we explore important topics on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. Kicking off our series in the medical humanities, we have Dr. Dev Anand, who is the director of the Singh Health Medical Humanities Program and the head of the Singh Health Duke NUS Lung Center. With Dr. Dev, we have two episodes. In this first episode, we will talk about the role of the medical humanities in the hospital. In this episode, he shares the possibilities of infusing the humanities into the teaching of medicine and clinical practice and an upcoming program that aims to instill in healthcare professionals a deeper understanding of sickness and suffering through various disciplines such as philosophy, religion and literature. Without further ado, Dr. Dev. Could you put these in concrete terms through the example of the Singh Health Medical Humanities? What exactly does it do? What are the kinds of programs it has? Maybe how do you envision its role is in medicine in Singapore? So when we started the Singh Health Medical Humanities Program, it was started out by my mentor, Professor Chao Wan Cheng, who was the chief of the Division of Medicine. And she had the vision to, to set this office up next to the Office of Research, education and clinical sciences. So although it's a small office, she set it up in parallel to those big pillars of clinical medicine that, you know, or academic medicine that we have. Um, so the Office of Humanities has tried to support each of those three pillars. Uh, I, I would start with education because it's the easiest one, right? So in medical education, the humanities has got two functions. You can use the humanities to teach something clinical, or you can use the humanities for itself. So for example, uh, you know, when we teach auscultation of the heart, following the cello in the clarinet quintet, and when I teach auscultation of the heart, realistically, it's not very fulfilling to teach students a series of steps which they can learn in the book and just criticize them for missing out a step, which I'm sure they will eventually learn. But to really auscultate the heart, you need to really listen to the heart sounds. And one of the best ways was to use what John Stone did. And what we do is, I, we, I can, you can get this off the, off the internet. You can listen to the clarinet quintet. And while they are playing, you can, you can watch the cello and follow the cello. And then after that, you can take it off uh, tell them not to look at the screen and then listen to the quintet again and try and follow the cello and then go on to the heart and then ask them to follow a particular heart sound. And, you know, it is, this is, is an example of how for music will allow you to teach auscultation of the heart in clinical medicine. And, I, and, and there's so many other examples. I mean, clearly by reading literature, we understand how to empathize and truly live in the shoes of somebody else as they tell the story. And this is an, another example. I mean, I've been teaching communication uh, to medical students and residents for a long time. And just like trying to define medical humanities, people ask me how to define empathy, right? And, you know, and we talk about it all the time. We say, oh, we need to show empathy, we need to show empathy. But it is, you know, it, I, I can give you a textbook definition and that will not help you in any meaningful way. Uh, what you really need to do is actually when you go out and you read and you understand how people's lives are, which are different from your own, that's when, when you go and listen to a patient's story, you understand 
how illness is manifesting in that patient's life. And that's a very, very, very powerful lesson. So that's an example. So those are examples of how we can use the humanities to teach something uh, in medicine. Then uh, there are obviously other parts of the humanities, like philosophy, which we use, which we use the subject itself as a, as a building block to understand what we do. So by, by learning philosophy, we can teach things like professionalism and ethics. So uh, to give you an example, one of the first talks I give uh, Duke and US students is a talk on ethics. And that talk is entitled, The Good Doctor. And I ask students you know, to define what a good doctor is. And I tell them that how they define a good doctor will in many ways influence their own practice of medicine for the rest of their careers. Because is a good doctor a, uh, a doctor who is good based on what you think you're doing? Or is a good doctor someone who's good because your fellow colleagues think that they're doing the right thing? Or is a good doctor someone whom patients think is doing the right thing? And you will realize that all those three things don't necessarily always have coherence. And sometimes you will have to choose. And, you know, uh, doing the thing that your colleagues think is the right thing may get you promoted and may get you ahead in your professional career, but may not be the thing that your patients value, right? And again, the choices that we make will define the kind of physician that we become, right? So this is an example of how understanding that area or that philosophy, and, and, and we can obviously go and talk about how Aristotle defined you know, what the meaning of what we do and so on, and use virtue ethics to conceptualize this. Uh, and that's a different way of looking at ethics as opposed to just telling them, this is what the Singapore Medical Council's ethical guidelines are. Please follow the rules. I don't want to put down the SMC guidelines. I think that uh, there is a role for it. And you know, I think that it's important that practicing doctors uh, know, you know of what's in it. Uh, but it should not be used as a book of rules that are meant, you know, that's used to enforce um, uh, you know, what, what we need to do. And if you don't follow it, you get punished. Uh, you know, that, that kills all the, uh, the magic of medicine. Um, so to move on to clinical practice, so that's what we do for education. And uh, for clinical practice, one of the things that we have done is we have started interprofessional grand ward routes. And again, because I work in intensive care and so on, that's where it started, but it's, it's moved on to many, many other areas. Now, I mean, the stroke team has a similar round and uh, some of the transplant teams have rounds and so on. And again, uh, what we do is uh, these are literally interprofessional. So it's not just doctors in a room discussing a case. It is nurses, allied health, pharmacists, um, you know, a broad representation of the team that looks after a patient. And we try to use, um, uh, and, we, and we discuss a case. And what I found is that if you stick to the case and try and bring out learning points, what happens is the people who are involved in the case become very defensive. An alternative way of doing this that we have found is we listen to the case and I try and identify or one of the facilitators will try and identify a theme that we need to focus on and we will 
read something or we will show a picture and we will discuss the picture. And by doing this, you take all the people who are involved in the case out of the case and the barriers to discussion come down. And it is, it's no longer a persecution session that you don't feel like you need to defend your own uh, actions and so on. And, and we've done this uh, in different ways. I mean, once we read uh, Robert Frost's Mending Wall uh, in all of this, and, um, you know, one of the things that we do and we find in interprofessional uh, collaboration is boundaries between different, uh, different professions. You know, um, what is the responsibility of the resident and what is the responsibility of the pharmacist? How does the dialysis nurse uh, do continuous renal replacement therapy while the physiotherapist is trying to move the patient in ICU, right? So we've got all these boundary issues that we have. And the Mending Wall helped us understand the values of having clear boundaries and to understand, you know, and when, you, when we know those, we understand those boundaries and we respect them, then we, we respect each other and we know when we overstep our boundaries. Um, similarly, uh, we have uh, looked at artwork and we have uh, of patients who've been to the ICU and drawn about or described their experiences. And then we try and say, well, how do you think the patient felt? How do you think the family member felt? And then we, we draw it out from there. Uh, similarly, we have even done religion. Um, and again, it's a very sensitive issue because people have very strong opinions and, and feelings about this. And what we do is we try and talk about, well, what would a patient who is a Hindu want uh, as part of end-of-life care? And what's important to that patient? And then while we talk about that and we sometimes get a domain expert to, to, to describe this, the, the team uh, then goes back to the case and say, well, based on this case, we can learn different things about what happened. And so uh, this is how I think the humanities uh, can break down, you know, I think some of the walls and barriers between people and try and make these interprofessional rounds much more collaborative. Um, so so that, that's an example of clinical care. Um, and then, of course, uh, in terms of research, we've started a few small projects. Many of them are actually in medical education research. Uh, one of them is on um, that our palliative care team is doing on uh, empathy. And what they do is they get residents to sit down and they read some passages from the death of Ivan Illich. And they reflect on this with psychologists. Uh, and, and again, there's a great epiphany in, in, in one of the passages where um, Ivan Illich realizes that despite all the things that he thought he did correct, he may not have lived life as well as he could have. And you know that, that causes a lot of existential suffering. And, and, and a lot of residents, actually, when they reach that point, uh, it's almost as if their light bulb goes, off, uh, goes on in their heads. And, you know, uh, and, and they really connect with the text. And then there's a follow-up session uh, after they do that, that text reading and, and reflection where they either bring something that they have written uh, or they bring something that they have read um, and, they, and they read it out to the group and they try and connect um, what, that they, what they have read with a specific experience in end-of-life care that they have uh, that they have had. So when we first started Madlit in 2017, there was overwhelming interest from the student body, and there was a lot of talk of many different activities that could happen. 
We even received funding to subsidize play tickets by Wild Rice. Yet a challenge which we commonly faced was in order to achieve funding, we constantly had to prove that we were somehow producing some KPI. I was wondering how, how does the SGH Mega Humanities Office deal with that? Or is the importance of Mega Humanities a given and there is no need to kind of prove itself? I think, I think you know the answer to that. And the answer is, uh, you know, funding is always limited and we need to compete. Um, I think that the people who are interested in the humanities need to show um, how this value adds. And my own feeling on this is that it is not difficult because the humanities um, has so much to contribute uh, to, to what we do. Um, so we, we've had the same, same issue. I mean, for every dollar that I have uh, raised, I've had to explain to somebody why that dollar shouldn't go to, you know, some other research or some other clinical project. And which is fair. I mean, uh, I, I don't think one is more important than the other. And we, we need to, um, we need to be accountable, uh, which is, which is okay. Um, my, my advice is that, um, we don't need to uh, grow the humanities for itself, right? We need to grow the humanities because it will help medicine. And I think that's ultimately the message that my office is trying to, to, to put out. When humanities is such a new player in medicine, yet still judged based on the same kinds of criteria for science, it can feel like that's hampering the growth of the mega humanities in medicine when we don't make provisions for something which is novel. I mean, uh, the, the truth is that in, in medicine, the humanities are a lot younger than the sciences. In some ways, it's older, but some ways, it's younger. I think we, we've lost the humanities uh, as, as we moved along. Uh, I, I don't know whether you, you, you know this, but um, in the United States, for a long time, um, because of the way they are their college program is, is set up. Uh, you need to do an undergraduate degree before you go to medical school. And um, it was the common thing for uh, people who went to medical school to get a liberal arts education. Um, that changed uh, along the way into pre-med and, and a, and a science-based education and so on. And, 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 and again, it is not that that's bad or good. It's just that when things swing completely in one direction, you lose something. And uh, because we, we swung completely away from the humanities uh, in embracing the science, we lost something. We need to regain the humanities without losing the science. I mean, clearly we still need science in many, many, many ways. And uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't lose sight of that. It seems like most of the programs which you've talked about are in internal medicine or palliative medicine. I was wondering then, how about the other specialties? How do we preach to the unconverted? I think you talked about this a little bit in terms of finding solutions to problems that people already have. But how about beyond that? Right. I think that that's uh, uh, a work in progress. We have already reached out to quite a few other specialties, um, including family medicine and emergency medicine and Again, we have also, uh, pediatrics is another area which has shown a lot of interest in this, um, which, which again, uh, you know, a, a very medical field. 
the other specialty that I think has also shown a great interest is radiology. Yeah, and um, maybe radiologists like to look at pictures. Uh, but but uh, the radiologists have been fantastic in my hospital and they've also got a great um, uh, uh, heritage of the, in terms of the history of Singapore radiology. So they've got a big interest in the history uh, component. One of the issues is it's a, it's about we need to have enough trained people in order to reach out. Again, uh, the, 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 the core group now is quite small um, and... One of the reasons I'm trying to, uh, or we are trying to push the, the certificate course is to build the, the, the faculty numbers. And once we have more people who are able, who are, actually, it's not able, it's people who are comfortable in doing this. When, when we have been culturalized, in, in when, we when we stand in front of a classroom and when we talk, um, we talk in very scientific terms. And... Um, a lot of faculty feel uncomfortable breaking that mold and saying, well, let's, try, let's talk in a different way. Um, and the truth is, uh, it's, it's really a mental barrier because once they, once, they, once they open up, the experience almost universally is that people, the audience responds in a very, very positive way. Um, and one of the things that, I mean, I won't say it's an opportunity, but one of the things that has happened because of COVID is that our hospital has, has asked the Office of Humanities to try and help uh, with issues like staff wellness, trying to connect people who are dealing with social distancing and professional isolation. It, it is very clear that the things that we put out and whether or not people recognize it as the humanities, again, it's not really important. But at least the things that we put out um, is really connecting. So, for example, I, I don't know whether uh, you're aware of this, but recently in a hospital in Southampton, Banksy uh, put out a new mural and, uh, of, of a little boy who's, who's playing with a nurse uh, with a cape, and, and, and he's got all the traditional superheroes in a little waste basket. And I, I, we, we took that picture and we put it on our hospital uh, work, uh, Facebook workplace. And you would be, you'd be amazed, I know, and um, the reach of this is not limited to doctors. And uh, a lot of people wrote back comments uh, about it, uh, either talking about other Banksy works that they were very, very happy about or talking about, um, you know, how healthcare professions, professionals, because of being on the front line, have reached uh, this superhero status. And some even wondering, you know, is this, uh, is this just a temporary thing? And, you know, uh, you know when, 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 the, when the pandemic recedes, uh, we'll all go back to being underappreciated and so on. So, I, you know, the spectrum of responses was fantastic. And again, what really, um, you know, was heartwarming was that uh, a lot of people engaged with it. And in, in a similar way, now that we've been putting out works, I, I have physiotherapists sending me dance routines to put up. I have uh, pharmacists in Sengkang who are writing poems and 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 which we which we are uh, which we which we are posting. We have social workers who are who are giving us artwork. So our aim is to grow this organically, rather than you know. Um, 
say, let's aim to have an institute of humanities, which I think is the very, I mean, if, if we were going to go along what you said about KPIs and, and so on, that would be the dream, right? I say, oh, the dream is to have a center of humanities and sing out. And, and I think that's not true. I think uh, what is absolutely true is we want the culture to embrace the humanities, you know? Um, that would take precedence over us having grants and publications and uh, and professorships and so on. Um, you know that that would give me and my office the greatest amount of satisfaction. That you know that uh, at the end of the day, the 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 doctors that we produce are caring individuals. You know, uh, uh, individuals who have practical wisdom to use. Uh, the SMC guidelines in the way, uh, you know, in, in a way to practice that they will be proud of themselves, you know. So um, uh, that would, you know, in my mind, be the aim of our office. Most healthcare professionals don't really have a humanities background, be it in junior college or having been the subject that they study at university. A view which I often got from skeptics was if the humanities are so malleable, it can end up becoming a stand-in for feel-good, which is a relatively anti-Singaporean thing to do. The most Singaporean thing to do would be to be efficient as opposed to indulging in our emotions. So my question that I really wanted to pose to you is when do you think the humanities would be able to stand for itself? instead of sitting in the crooks of crannies made available to it right now? And would it take a generation? Well, one of the things that I was most concerned about when Prof Chow asked me to, to start uh, this office was exactly what you talked about, the skeptics. Um, but I have found that the response has been so overwhelming that we don't really need to win over skeptics. They're such a minority. Okay, sometimes they might be a vocal minority, um, but I, I think that the energy doesn't need to go to that, so that, that minority. There, is, there are so many people who are, to whom, and as I said, initially I was surprised, and then now I'm, I'm no longer surprised, is that you know, the, the number of people who respond to this in a positive way is incredible, right? Um, and again, uh, I was also concerned, you know, that many of the, the people who have come into medicine come from a very science background, only to find that subsequently that a lot of them do a lot of things on their own time, right? And uh, there's a very human part uh, to, uh, to these people's lives beyond the science. And I think that that is, uh, this, the humanities has allowed them to tap, to tap into this. Um, now, I think that there will be some people who are very, very interested in certain areas and um, who will want to take this beyond uh, their clinical practice, which is fine. And what uh, my office will try to do will be try to support these initiatives. Um, but I, to the majority, they have enough things to do. I mean, you know how healthcare workers are busy all the time. So you know, and yeah, they they don't they don't need an additional uh, um, uh, challenge on their plate. Uh, I won't say KPI, but at least they won't they don't need this. So um, 
it is for that reason why uh, the humanities is here to support them. If it makes them feel good, that's great. In fact, humanities is meant to make people feel good or to make, at least to make, 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 help them connect with that human element in themselves and in their work. Uh, so I'm not upset or saddened by the fact that it's a feel-good thing. Okay? Um, but, but again, you can see from the work that we're doing from the certificate course and talking about the diploma course and so on and talking about encouraging people to be academic and write thesis, uh, research thesis in this, is that if there is, uh, if there is interest in, in developing this beyond just everyday clinical practice, we want to support it and we are going to support it. Um, another example of what I'm trying to uh, do, and again, this is in the works, is, um, and again, um, I know that it's impossible to do uh, things without any support at all and, and also no, without any recognition. So we are here to help in those, in those ways. So uh, the, the answer to your question is, we're going to try and build this organically. Without actually pushing it, I'm fairly certain that there will be people coming forward um, who have enough interest in humanities to want to make this much more than what it is uh, and much more than what we have conceptualized it today. Um, uh, you talked about the Yale NUS and, uh, and Duke NUS uh, through, uh, well, I don't know, through train system and so on. I think that there are now seven, seven or eight students who, have, who are already in that program. So, you know, I, I would expect in, in, in less than five years, we would have people who are completing residency who have had a liberal arts uh, education in a very serious way. Uh, and because we have, we, have, we have left it so broad, we open the door to whatever interest that they have. So I, I'm not restricting this to literature or to art. It can be anything. If you enjoyed that episode, please stay tuned for the second part of our interview with Dr. Dev, where we will discuss how we can further grow the mega humanities presence in Singapore, be it as a faculty member or just as a student. 